0: Uh, was growing up, we had a family table. Uh, it, it was sort of tucked in the corner of the kitchen. It was rather small in my memory for the six members of our family. Had a bench on one side at which I sat with my younger sister. And, and uh, it was one of those plastic tables from the 1960s that all the retro people want to own now, you know. And <laughs> and plastic modular kind of chairs there. And it was the same table for the entire 30 years that my parents owned the house. And I have a lot of memories, both good and bad, you know, of the 18 years or so that I sat regularly at that table with my family. And I hope that you have a similar kind of feeling when you think back to your childhood. You know, if I was playing out in the neighborhood or in the yard and my mother called me to come to dinner, um, All the neighbor kids didn't tag along with me when I went to dinner. They didn't assume that just because they were with me or in the yard that that was an automatic invitation to be at the family table. Of course, I had friends sometimes come and stay with, you know, have dinner with us. But um, it, it was the family table. It's where the six of us sat and we ate together. This morning, I want to ask you the question: What gives you the right? to come to the family table this morning? Like later in the service when people get up and they come forward and they take the bread and the cup, what gives you the right to be among them to come up here and share in these elements? Well, you might think that you have that because you showed up this morning. And I grew up in a church like that. I We didn't go all the time, but we went enough that I remember, even as a small child, when they celebrated communion. And and I remember having absolutely no instruction or thought about what it meant. When the plate came by, they had the little cut-up pieces of bread on it. I was expected to take it and to drink the cup when it came by, too. I don't remember the pastor ever saying anything. My parents never gave me any instruction. I just figured that if you showed up and you were breathing, you could take communion. I mean that's all there was to it and I know a lot of people think of it that way but I want to want to remind you this is not the family table in the sense it's not just the table of our church it's called in the Bible the Lord's table in other words uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has a right to say who it is is invited to participate to sit at the table and to share in the meal that we have together I'd like us to think about that for a few minutes together. The passage that Paul just read to us is um, about that. It, it gives us at least direction in answering that question. And I'd like you to turn your Bible and look at this passage again. Paul and I are not the kind of uh, preachers who take a text and read it and then you know, kind of bounce off of it into other thoughts in outer space. I want you to look at the passage because I'm going to try to draw what I say right out of what the passage itself says. This is on page 868, if you pick up a Bible on a chair around you, Luke chapter 10. This passage simply breaks into two parts. Each one is two verses long. In the first two verses, we have Jesus' thanksgiving that is directed to God. And then in the second two verses, we have Jesus' blessing of his disciples and those two are connected the first two verses the thanksgiving given to God lays the basis for the blessing that he gives to the disciples and the first two verses I want to note at least point us in the direction of finding an answer to that question who has the privilege of sitting at the family table of the Lord Jesus Christ the one at which he in fact is the host And it's found, uh, really, in the first two verses in the word reveal or revealed. So I want to look at it again. I just want you to note the two times he uses that word. It says, uh, verse 21, in that same hour. Now let me know what Paul spoke on last week was Jesus sending out 72 disciples to preach and then calling them back after they went into various towns and villages. When he calls them back, he gave them instruction, and the instruction ended where he ended last week in the previous verse. Do not rejoice that you have this spiritual power, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And it's right then, it's in that same hour, that Jesus himself rejoiced, it says. And his rejoicing is expressed in this thanksgiving to the Father. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and, here's the word, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the, excuse me, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses, and here it is again, to reveal him. And uh, in verse 21 he says, God has, has hidden something from certain people, revealed it to others. And in verse 22, he, he says something so interesting. It's that apparently, you might picture in the Godhead, the three persons, the father has uh, granted to the son to be his co-regent. That's not the word used, but it's describing what happens when a king has his son crowned as king while he's still living, and they share the rule. That's apparently what has happened, because this prerogative of God is not only the prerogative of the Father, it's also the prerogative of the Son. That is, to reveal God, both Father and Son, to whomever He chooses. In other words, the blessing of knowing God, of belonging to God, of being accepted by God, the privilege of coming to the Lord's table and sharing in the meal is something that is given to those to whom God has revealed himself, both the Father and the Son. Now, what would it mean for that to happen, for God to reveal himself to a person? Well, that is what the gospel is. The gospel is this message that God reveals himself to people. The initiative is on God's part. When God reveals these things, as Jesus says in verse 21, these things, When he reveals these things to someone, he's revealing something that we gather in the passage from the response of the disciples. They're already beginning to experience. They're entering into what it means, and that's why he blesses them in the next two verses. And what it describes is what happens when a person begins to understand the sufficiency of Christ. For God to reveal himself to you would require, first of all, that he reveals to you your need for a Savior. If you do not understand anything about your own inadequacy, if you don't on any level understand that your lifestyle, your choices, at least at points, have dishonored God and that God is not pleased with that, that there's some distance between you and God, of course, you need no Savior if you haven't had that. That's the beginning of Revelation. And the Bible attributes the response to that to the word repentance. Repentance is a recognition of my state before God, that I am not in a condition that allows me just to run into his presence and to be accepted by him. But then, for God to reveal himself is not only to reveal within you the sense of need for a Savior, but obviously it is primarily to reveal that the Savior whom he has provided for you is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only And completely sufficient Savior because he is the only one who has provided a completely sufficient sacrifice in the place of sinners. He has taken sin and guilt, even your sin and guilt, upon himself and taken it out of the way as a barrier between you and God. And the gospel says, look to Christ, look to Christ and to him alone. And when, when you do that, when you see, oh, it's all wrapped up in Christ, what he did for me, who he is, his perfect character, then God opens his arms wide to receive you, to embrace you, to bring you back to himself. Listen, God wants you to come to him. He wants you to love him, to live for him. And there's only one way for that to happen. The only way that that can happen is that you must come to him through Jesus Christ and him alone. And for that to happen, for you to see the sufficiency of Christ is not to see something like a a vision with your eyes. It's to understand, to grasp that only the Son can make you acceptable before him. In other words, it's only those who receive Christ as the completely adequate Savior, the one who can forgive sins and make you acceptable to God, only those are qualified to be in God's presence. Now, and I want you to note, in verse 21, he hides this from some people, and he reveals it to others. He hides it from what he says, the wise and understanding, and he reveals it to little children. And so he contrasts these two things, the wise and understanding, and little children. And, and, you know, you have to think carefully, what exactly is he contrasting there? Because in many contexts, there's nothing wrong with being wise and understanding, according to the Bible. And in, in some contexts, there's nothing great about being a little child. But somehow, there's something he's contrasting here. And the words, the most helpful place to see it is probably found in the word that is translated, little Children, little children. This word is used only three times in the New Testament, and it means little, emphasis on that word, children, infants and toddlers. On on one other occasion when it's used in the New Testament, it means children who still only drink milk. They're not yet on solid food. Little children, babies. What is the chief characteristic of a baby? Well, at least the one that would match what... looking at here is a baby has complete trust, utter dependence on those who care for her. Um, The opposite of that characteristic, that utter, complete trust and dependence is what is conveyed in the words wise and understanding. It it means people, apparently, who are self-sufficient and they're independent And we shouldn't take Jesus' illustration farther than it's meant to be taken. He's illustrating what it means to come to God. He's not illustrating what kind of person you want to hire. You know, when we hire someone on the church staff, we're looking for someone who on some level is wise and understanding. That is, they're an adult. They're self-starters. They're able to solve problems and help people and, and think through solutions and things like that. We're not looking for infants But we're not talking about that subject, about all kinds of other areas of life. We're talking about what it means to have a relationship with God. God looks for people who have this characteristic of humble trust in him. And he hides the truth from those whose wisdom is self-dependent and self-generated, and he reveals it to the depending and trusting. And what I want you to note, and this is really really, going to require a little bit of thought, is that that is never presented in the passage as being the basis on which he reveals his son to you. What I mean is this. He essentially communicates that God reveals his son and his sufficiency to people when they are dependent and trusting it doesn't say or even imply that he, he reveals himself to people because they are dependent and trusting. It's not something that we do, like you get yourself into a humble enough state so that God will accept you. And the reason, the real reason, is not only does he not articulate that, but it's stated at the end of verse 21 in the words, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I know you don't look at footnotes in the Bible. They're often rather small. You might have to get on a magnifying glass, but there's a footnote by that word. It's the only footnote on the page. And it it says, or, for so it pleased you well, or as one commentator expressed it, such was your good pleasure. I like that word, your good pleasure. Jesus doesn't assign... God's gracious choice to reveal or to hide anything from people, he doesn't assign it to something inside of you or me. He doesn't assign it to anything or anyone else. It's purely something inside of him, his good pleasure. And as frustrating as it might be, because we can't really define what that means, that's where the Bible always assigns God's gracious work in people's lives, his good pleasure. Isaiah chapter 46 Verses 9 and 10, God says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I will do all that I please. God asserts that it is his good pleasure that is the basis upon which anyone, is able to come and sit at his table and share in his benefits. Now, what does this mean? Um, Well, we've said that the privilege to be a part of God's people, to come to the table, is for those to whom God has revealed Christ. And, and we know that God has revealed Christ when a person sees and understands and responds to the sufficiency of Christ, his complete adequacy to forgive a person, to make them clean in the sight of God, to bring them into the presence of God. That's what we see. But we've also seen that it's, while it's done for those who are trusting and dependent, The passage doesn't say he revealed Christ because you made yourself trusting and dependent. He revealed Christ to you because it was his good pleasure. Jesus chooses to reveal himself to someone not because they achieved a certain attitude. Now I've become humble enough that he will reach me. It's, It's purely because of his good pleasure. Now, let me untangle this just a little bit further. People often ask, well, what does that do to free will? Free will is something the Bible teaches. That's basic to Christian belief in all its forms. According to the Bible, the human will is always free to choose. We are always free to choose whatever we truly desire. That is the clear teaching of the Bible. God will never force us to choose something that we don't desire. He will not violate our will in that way. In fact, free will is the ability to choose what we truly desire. Now, a couple words about that. Um, what we truly desire doesn't include things we can't choose. I may like to be, want to be six foot seven, but I was never going to be six foot seven. It was like outside of the realm of my possibilities. God doesn't allow us to choose things we can't choose. A person might wish she was born in a different family, but she couldn't choose it. Our choices are limited by certain realities. Well, I understand that. And, and less obviously, we have to distinguish desires uh, from from what I'm calling true desires. Here's what I mean. The other morning, it was Thursday, I remember. I woke up, alarm went off, I'm laying in bed there, and I happen to know from the news the night before, it's 14 degrees below zero outside. And it wasn't 14 below in my room, it was, you know, plenty warm, kind of. Uh, my wife likes to sleep in pretty frigid temperatures, but, you know... <laughs> I was laying in there all covered up, and I was thinking, there's nothing more I want than to just stay here for the next couple hours and kind of live in that twilight zone between wakefulness and sleepfulness and, you know, think about things and doze off. It was so nice, but instead I got up. And the reason I got up, it was not because I wasn't free to choose what I desired. It said, obviously, I desire some things more than staying in a warm bed. Yes, I desired to stay in a warm bed, but I didn't. Because I had other desires as well. Even though I didn't think this through consciously, it's obvious that there were things I wanted to do more than laying in bed. I wanted to be prepared to speak this morning, for example. I wanted to meet with people that I was to meet with that day and so forth. Free will is the ability to choose what we truly desire. And the problem before God is not that we can't choose what we desire. Here's the problem. Listen carefully. The problem before God is that we can't choose our desires. Our problem is that we are not able to control what it is we desire. That's the Bible's teaching. We are always free to choose what we truly desire. We are not free to choose things we don't desire. And here's why I say that. And I'd like you to take a Bible and turn to this. Romans chapter 3. If you turn over uh, to the right to page 941, if you're using one of our Bibles. Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul brings to an end a three-chapter argument about why human beings are in need before God. It deals with sin, the sinfulness of religious people, the sinfulness of irreligious people, their responsibility to God. And then what he does is from his extensive knowledge of the Bible gained from having sat at the feet of the greatest first-century Rabbi Gamaliel, And from the age of six or so, been brought up in his presence and learned the Bible, which qualified him to be a rabbi. The Apostle Paul draws from all these different sources, mostly the Psalms, a couple of verses from Proverbs, one from Isaiah. And he puts together this. It's called a katina, which which just means a list, basically, of quotations that are all about the same thing from different sources. And here's what he says, verse, uh, verse 10. Look at it. There is none righteous, no, not one no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And skip to the last verse, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now let me note, in in those verses, we're meant to take them very seriously, he's describing the human condition, apart from anything God would do, left to our own in this world, born naturally into this world, raised in a family, without God ever intervening in any way in our lives, this describes the natural state of a human being. Apart from common grace that we experience in this world, apart from the influence of God, he says, none is righteous, not even one. No one seeks for God. No one does good. And what those verses tell us is that what sin corrupts is not our ability to choose, ultimately. Our will is free to choose whatever it is we truly desire. What sin corrupts is our ability to desire the good. We just don't desire it. Left to ourselves, we don't desire it. Left to myself, I won't choose to live for God. I won't choose to live to the glory of God. It's not that I couldn't choose that. It is not even within the realm of my desires. I will always bend it away from what it was originally intended to do, towards some kind of self-gratification, so that left to myself, if I'm religious, I'll be religious, so that God will reward me in the end. Not for God. And you might think, well, Tom, you're getting in pretty deep weeds. You know, why is this such an issue to you? Well, let me explain. The only reason is because there's a a passage in 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn to it. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is reminding that particular church that their church, and in fact, the whole church in the world, anywhere that it's ever found at any time, the church is made up of people from all classes of society, from the highest to the lowest. And he basically says a lot more from the second than from the first. You know, there's not many wise by worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. He doesn't say not any, but not many. And then he goes on, he says this, but God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here's the word, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What God does is he reduces people to the place of having nothing in themselves to boast about. And all I want to at least help you to think about this morning, to reflect on, is that before God, all grounds of boasting have been removed. This isn't to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's to make us feel good about God. God revealed himself to you when you were dependent but he didn't reveal himself to you because you got yourself into a dependent state because you wouldn't even desire that. No one's qualified to come to the table who's still thinking, I'm so glad that I'm not like other people, independent, wise in their own conceits. I'm so glad that I got myself into a humble and teachable state so that God could save me. That's not not what we say. Those who are qualified, I say, who say, by God's good pleasure. The God who revealed to me my need for a Savior and revealed for me the only Savior, Jesus Christ, the only acceptable Savior, it's by God's good pleasure that I'm called to be here this morning. When Jesus goes on and, and says to the disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, He's speaking to people who obviously have begun to experience that. They're beginning to grasp at this point in the gospel story that this is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And all that that's going to mean for them, they're they're acknowledging we're people from whom the blinders have been torn off. And we understand that to be restored to God is to come through Christ. Generations of people went before them who looked and longed for the coming of the Messiah, and they didn't see it. And God's good pleasure has become the basis of their privilege of knowing him. And the same thing that he said to them is true for us as well. We live in the time after the Son of God has been revealed. We no longer long for his first appearing to understand who he is. And there are three things that result from this. Three, three important things. This is why this is so important. The first is security. 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 When my mother would call me home to dinner, I had no question there would be dinner on the table. I knew it would be there. I never even thought about it. I didn't, until I got old enough to understand, which was about 30, (laughs) I didn't even say thank you, Mom, unless my father told me to. But the fact is... um, Grace is the word that describes how God worked in you to change your desires, to reveal to you Christ so that suddenly you desired Jesus as the most superb, desirable, satisfying object of faith and life. And if that has happened, you belong to God. Today you're sitting as children, little children, at the family table ready to partake of what he has provided. That's the first thing, security. You belong to God. Second thing is identity. It's something people are needing today and seem to be lacking. And and the need for a sense of identity is what characterizes a society in which family ties are breaking down, in which neighborhood is no longer a safe place where people look out for each other, where politics tends to divide people into separate little tiny interest groups and victims. And identity is the very thing the gospel gives us. I'm a son of God. You're a son of God or a daughter of God. You're a saint. You're a holy person in God's sight. You're an heir of the covenants of the promise. You're one of God's people. You're a brother or a sister in the family of God. You're a servant of the living God. We could go on and on. In Christ, we have an identity that is eternal in significance. Whether or not we even know who our parents were makes no difference for eternity. So, not only security and identity, but the last, maybe the most important, is praise. You see, when you realize it's only by God's good pleasure that I am present, then the only thing left is to praise God. There's no sense of, I'm so proud I accomplished this, or I'm glad I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians, or something like that. There's none of this, God, I'm so glad I'm not self sufficient like those other people, I'm humble. When you realize that God's pleasure, his free and sovereign grace, is the only basis for your relationship with him, for your sitting at the family table and coming like two little children to receive his gifts, praise is the only response. And that's your birthright if you are a believer here this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we turn our attention to this table and the elements that are laid on it, we ask that you would give to us that humble, trusting attitude, that our hearts would be filled with a sense of gratitude that we are loved by the eternal God who in his own good pleasure and his eternal purposes has revealed Christ to us. We pray that you would Help us to live in such a way that others might find that same hunger and thirst growing inside of them. They also would come to look to Christ as Savior. But we thank you this morning for the privilege of being at your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.